Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, so often in life, we have situations that where we could really use a hand to figure out the right direction to go, the right decision to make, the path to choose. And we often turn to family and close friends for advice. And sometimes that advice, I don't, want, I don't know if the word is backfires on us, but it, it's where it is meant to be helpful. It is sometimes something other. And we have a wonderful guest on today. We're really excited to bring her on. But before we do, we want to read something that she wrote on this very, very topic of advice from loved ones. And would you mind doing the reading, Sherry? Not at all. All right. So this is dismissing hurtful advice. (laughs) If only you had caught it sooner. If only you kept him busier. If only you didn't put so many demands on him. If only you approached it differently. If only you had gotten rid of the alcohol in the house sooner. If only his job wasn't so stressful. If only you'd reached out sooner. If only you'd made him go to AA. If only you didn't let him drink before family events. If only you didn't have a glass of wine with him. If only you made sure that he didn't drink during the day. If only you made him see a therapist. If only your boundary wasn't so severe. Fuck off, all of you. Do you think that I chose this life? Do you think that I wanted my husband to be an alcoholic? Do you think that I purposely turned a blind eye to empty bottles, the nasty behavior, and the partner that was asleep on the couch at 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Do you think I wanted to be fighting for his life, my family, and my marriage at this stage of my life, or ever for that matter? Until you walk in my shoes or someone else's who has fought this battle, this disease, you don't have the right or the privilege to give me advice to say, one day at a time, Don. I didn't choose to live my life one day at a time. That choice was made for me. You don't have the right to speculate on why he is an alcoholic or what I should be doing to help him. This is not my disease. I can support the best way I can and when I can. When I have the strength, you can judge me, tell me what you think, what you would do, but would you? Would you throw him out, walk away, leave him to die? If I had a magic wand, I would change it all. But that only happens in the movies or in fairy tales. And the last time I looked, I wasn't living in either. I'm living in a global pandemic, locked in my home once again with a recovering alcoholic who just last week told me that he was always sad and nothing brings him joy. So feel free to give me all the advice you want. I will take it for what it's worth. I will continue to concentrate on what makes me happy learning from others that have walked this path and above all know that I can look myself in the mirror every day, knowing that I'm doing the best I can. Wow. The, the first time I heard those words, I just knew we had to have Don on the intoxicated podcast and I've probably read it 10 or 15 times since such a powerful explanation of what it's like to be going through something traumatic, whether it be alcoholism being the loved one of an alcoholic, or, or really, I think many things that you can go through in life that are traumatic and have that, that advice come in that's, 
you know, well-meaning, but not always going to hit the spot and how you react to it. Um, Don, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for sharing your words. I think they're going to strike home with a lot of people. We appreciate you being on the Intoxicated Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Don, first, let's talk about this writing. Was that cathartic? Did you feel like you were getting something off your chest when you wrote that? Very much so. Very much so. Because, um, you know, you hear it, you hear the advice from everybody. And it was that you want to scream from the, you know, the, the tallest mountain to, to make them understand that it's just not that easy. And so I found this one really, I, I, funny enough, usually when you send out the writing prompt, I try and I do it usually Mondays and then I can go back. This one, I left it and I wrote it Wednesday morning before our call. And so it really was just a, almost a vomit of what was, I was feeling at the time and, and was able to get it all out. Well, it, it's powerful. You, you switch um, emotions throughout. I mean, the, the part in the middle after you've read all the advice and you say, fuck you, fuck off all of you. I mean, I think you are like us. We don't curse often. We don't shy away from it. But when we do, we want it to be meaningful. And there was some real powerful sentiment in, in your statement there. So I know people are really going to resonate. Thank you very much. I know on our call, that was like, it was a round of applause after your reading because all of us have had those, you know, unsolicited advice even. And you're like, you have no idea what it's like on a day-to-day basis. And the misconception that you're alcoholic is just lying around the house, throwing beer bottles everywhere, screaming and yelling and, you know, in dirty clothes. That's not them every day. So you can't possibly know as an outsider, what it's like on the inside. No, and I I think the other piece of that too is, I mean, uh, you know, you you know, everyone has good intentions, but to your point, unless you live it, unless you're there every day and, and, you know, you you look at the sacrifices from, you know, even the family perspective, trying to keep the family together, trying to keep, you know, the kids kind of at bay without trying to, I I don't know, but it's, 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 you know, people say when they talk about codependence, they talk about, you know, well, you're, you're trying, you were enabling because you were trying to hide it. No, I was trying to keep the kids safe. I was trying to, you know, do the best that you could do. And, and it's having that unsolicited advice sometimes is it makes you want to scream. I know people are resonating already with your sentiments, Don, but let's help people resonate even more. Let's, let's hear your story. Can we go back a little ways and tell us Tell us about alcohol in your relationship and how things evolved. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I guess similar to your story, guys, when my husband and I met, um, we, we were a blended family. We met uh, 22 years ago, blended family. And so when the kids were gone every other weekend um, or every, every, every Thursday night, we made that date night and we would go play squash and then we go to the bar and have a couple of beers and grab some wings and then go home. And then, you know, same thing happened when the kids were at, at our exes, we would, you know, go to the, go to for lunch and have a couple of beers. And, and that Saturday afternoon, let's go to the pub, have a couple of beers and, and, and lunch came to be our normal. Um, that would be, we would we catch up when the, we weren't driving the kids back and forth to hockey rinks and things. And I guess alcohol was always part of our life. It's been part of my family. 
um, part of his family, his, his dad is an alcoholic, his brother uh, was an alcoholic, his dad, his brother is an alcoholic. Um, I guess I really never thought about it um, being an issue. It just really, it was more of a social thing. And then uh, about uh, three years ago, I guess, I noticed it kind of creeping up more and more. And he was drinking more on a Saturday afternoon, falling asleep on the couch and um, or falling asleep earlier on a Saturday. And then, you know, he started having a couple beers on a Sunday afternoon while we were watching football. And and I started, I guess, taking pictures on Saturday. I take I started taking pictures of him with my cell phone as he was passed out. And I'd show him the next morning and he he'd get really offended. Um, why are you taking pictures of me? I'm I'm really tired. I've had a rough week. I I, you know, I'm I'm tired. I'm just going to sleep. But I could notice it starting to change and it becoming more of an issue. Well, then when the pandemic hit, um, I don't know whether it was a combination of the stress he was under at work and the pandemic and things, you know, he, he's just, he's, he'll be 55 this year. Maybe it was part of a midlife crisis of people, if you believe in that. Um, and so he started to drink more and more. He suffered from anxiety for, for, for a couple of years, almost 10 years. Um, and I think the anxiety started to creep up. And so I didn't realize, but he was having like a shot of vodka in the morning to calm his nerves, to get his anxiety back in control. Looking back, it became a cyclical, you know, you drink, to, you drink to get the anxiety down, but then, you know, you get up the next morning and your anxiety is high because you've drank the night day before. And so every day he needed more and more alcohol to calm that and to calm the anxiety down. And so it got to the point probably in August of uh, 2020 um, when I would go out and I'd come home and I knew he'd been, I mean, when you're with someone, as long as you are, as long as I've been with Adam, you, you, you know, the signs, you know what, but he was working, he was working and he was functioning, but I could tell that he'd been drinking. And, uh, and I, you know, we'd have the same, we'd have the argument. I, why are you, how can you be drinking during the day? Your boss is going to find out. I can tell you've been drinking you know, he'd deny it, deny it, deny it. And so it, you know, it, it became, there was one day I, I'll never forget. I went into the office and he, and he got up to come out because he was, I had said something about his drinking and he got out to yell at me and, um, and he fell. And, and I thought, uh, oh my God, he's, he's had a heart attack or he's had a stroke or something. Cause he fell. No, he passed out. Like he literally fell and, and passed out. And that's when I knew it was, it, this was more than, than what I thought. So I, I talked to the kids. We have, our kids are all in their twenties. Um, uh, our eldest is 30 now and talked to the kids and they, you know, half of them were like, get rid of the booze, mom, you got to get rid of the booze. You got to, um, two of our older boys said, it's not going to matter. He's still going to drink. So I got rid of the booze. We had a long talk. Um, he said, I'm going to get it under control and didn't. And then of course, um, happened again and, and happened again. And then, uh, in 2020, when March of 2021, um, the kids, the girls, actually, we've got three boys and two girls and the girls came over on his birthday and he'd already had a champagne and orange juice about 10 o'clock in the morning. He was drinking when they came over and, uh, the girl said, dad, this is a problem. You know, uh, my eldest daughter, who's got two kids said, you know, when, when we come over, you're not paying attention, you're not fun anymore, you're too focused on the alcohol, our youngest daughter said, we can't have a conversation with you, dad. And he admitted at that point that he was thinking suicidal thoughts. 
And so my uh, eldest daughter, who's very much like me, very pragmatic, said, that's it, dad, get in the car. We're taking you to the hospital. So the three of us took him to the hospital. Of course, during COVID, um, we literally had to drop him off and there was no, we couldn't go into the hospital or anything with him. So we dropped him off. And uh, for the next 48 hours, I had no contact with him. I contact, I could contact the nurse's station. He went through withdrawal. Um, they got him some help from a psychological standpoint, put him on a ton of medications um, and, and told him, you know, that he, that he has to stop drinking. He was seeing a therapist at the time. We got home about a week later. He said that his therapist had said, um, you know, he, that he, he's got to use different techniques for his anxiety and, um, but he could still be a social drinker. And so he could drink on Saturdays and, and whatever. This is what he was telling me behind the scenes. I wasn't privy to the, what happened in the therapy sessions, obviously. So I don't know if that's actually what she told him or whether he was hanging on to that. I still want to be able to, to have a drink. Um, and uh, anyways, he started that. Well, then it came, came again, it got into, okay, well, I'm going to have a drink on, you know, on a Tuesday afternoon or I'm going to have a drink on a Thursday night or whatever. And then it became this again, uh, Mother's Day, he was drunk. Father's Day, I uh, ended up getting a couple pinched nerves in my neck. I gave birth to all my kids naturally. I've never felt pain like nerve pain ever. Um, and he couldn't take me to the hospital because he was too drunk to drive. Um, and so it kind of escalated and escalated again. Uh, and then fast forward to last um, last October. Uh, and I, and again, I mean, the lies that I found empty bottles, uh, he'd go out to the garage and, you know, to tell me he was doing something, have a beer. So the lies and the empty bottles and the, you know, I'm never going to do this again. He was so drunk at our daughter's wedding in September. He couldn't, uh, he, she refused to dance with him. Um, and we thought that was maybe the lowest point. We thought maybe that that would be the turning point. Um, he said he was going to get help. That was it. He was, and that lasted for two weeks. And then uh, he was back to the bottle again. And um, anyways, I had finally said, you need to get help. And, and he refused, uh, got drunk one Sunday afternoon and sent me an email, told me that we were getting divorced to get a lawyer. Um, and uh, I left the house and I said, I sent him an email from my daughters and said, um, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm not coming back for a while. I need some time to think. I went away with a girlfriend. We planned a trip months before. I went away with a girlfriend. And uh, and in the meantime, before we went away, I'd reached out to a treatment center um, for him. I'd spoke to his boss, told him what was going on. Um, I took the I took fifty thousand dollars out of our line of credit to pay for treatment and have a cushion for a few things. Of course, he blamed me later. Well, while I was away on vacation in Mexico, that. I was um, taking, I was stealing money. He'd got the kids involved. Mom, your mom's stealing money. She's doing this. She's doing that. Um, but while I was away on October 24th, I actually received a phone call from a girlfriend of mine and he was in crisis when she, when she got, he, she, he called her when she got here, he was in the fetal position on the floor in the living room and swore he would never drink again. Um, she did call me while I was on vacation to tell me what had happened. And uh, he had taken four or five champagne bottles full that were hidden in the garage, gave them to her um, to take away. 
got her to take his keys because apparently he had been drinking and driving. Um, you know, went through the whole, I've lost Dawn. She's never coming back. I've asked her for a divorce, all that stuff. When I was away, um, the center had called me and said that they were, we were able to move the intervention up. Did I want to? And, uh, and I said, yes, as fast as we can get this done. So I came home from Mexico on a Friday. I called all the kids and say, we're, we're doing this on, we're doing the intervention on Sunday. Um, they had all agreed that was fine. Obviously, for those of you guys who have been involved in interventions, it can go a couple different ways and we weren't too sure how it was gonna go. Um, but Sunday morning, and he hadn't had a drink since, since his crisis on October 24th, because that was the other thing I was worried about was what if he got up in the morning and started drinking again, it could change how the intervention goes, but he had been sober up for almost a week at that point. I had unlocked the front door so the kids could come in and he noticed it when he was going to the bathroom and he goes, why is the front door open or unlocked? And I said, oh, I'm just waiting for something for, from Amazon. I didn't know what else to say. And uh, anyways, he was in the bathroom and all the kids came in at 10 o'clock on that Sunday morning. And um, he came out and he saw everybody sitting there and uh, he asked me what was going on. And um, it was Melissa, a girlfriend of mine, who said, come sit here beside me. And uh, I sat on the other side of them and the kids all sat around and our, the, the man that I had, the therapist that I had hired to help with the intervention, explained what was going to happen. And, um, and then one by one, the kids read their letters, uh, what his best friend, Adam's best friend was here. He read his letter. Um, I went last and um, Adam broke down, um, cried through the whole thing and said, he said, I'm in so much pain, I need help. And I don't know what to do. And um, uh, our therapist that was there said, all you have to do is just agree to go. And um, we'd all had our boundaries set in our letters as to what we were prepared to do if he decided not to go. And um, he said, I'll go. And then he turned to me and he said, what about work? And I said, I've already taken care of it. I've, I've talked to your boss and they are a hundred percent behind you. Um, we just want you to get healthy. And, uh, he said, I need to pack a bag. And I said, I've already done it. You just need to go take a shower. And, um, and that was it. He went and uh, he spent a month there and came home. And the week, he, the first week he came home was rough. Um, that's, I think when I found you guys, maybe the last week that he was in treatment, um, and, uh, he's been sober for, it'll be three months oct uh, on January 25th or January 20th, yeah, January 25th. And, um, I still, I'm getting advice now from the other side, from the, well, you should do this now that he's sober. And, um, but it was a, it was two years of hell. Yeah. What an amazing story. So many parts of that, that I can resonate with the first one, of course, being, when, when we're, when we don't understand the disease and we don't even understand that we have a disease, the medicating with the very substance that's actually causing us the problem in my case, anxiety and depression sounds like the same, same for Adam, um, drinking cause it eases that pain, but not realizing that it's also the cause of the pain. That's, that's amazing. When you talk about the intervention and you said you guys were all prepared for the fact that it could go 
well as it did, it could work or it could go very poorly. And, and Sherry and I have heard lots of stories in both directions. We've, we've certainly heard some horror stories about that. I think it's really interesting that you included in your letters that you read to him what your boundary was going to be as it relates to interaction with him going forward if he doesn't go. Was that at the instruction of the therapist? Did they ask you to include that in your letters? Yes, they asked us to have a very clear boundary that we were prepared to follow through with because obviously like disciplining a child, if you're, you can discipline a child all you want if you're not going to follow through with it. And he said it's the same type of idea that whatever, whatever boundary or consequence you're putting in this letter, you have to be prepared to follow through with it. I think it's interesting. I think timing was on your side. Obviously, no one ever wants it to get as bad and as dangerous as it was for his health. But it's off, often we've said, and this is something that I learned from a therapist friend of ours, we, the alcoholics ourselves, have to be in enough pain to be ready to make that change. It can't be the pain that we're inflicting on others, sadly. It would be it would be such a better story if just because I was putting my wife in so much pain, I decided I was going to stop drinking. But once it gets a hold on us, that's not enough reason to stop. We, we ourselves have to be in enough pain to be ready to stop. And it sounds like the timing of the intervention was, was just that Adam was, had, had reached his threshold for pain and was, was willing and ready for help and just wasn't sure what that needed to look like. It sounds like, you know, we're talking a lot, on this episode about advice, unwanted or misguided, misunderstood advice, but it sounds like at least your kids, you and your kids were on the same page and supporting each other as you tried to support your husband. That, there must have been some, I mean, you never want to put your kids through that, even, even though they're adults, but there must have been some relief having each other to, to go through this. Am I reading that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, to your point, it, it, I mean, the kids are older, but they're still kids, right? They're still our kids. And so it, you don't, I, even to this day, I think I still shelter, you know, Adam from some of the things that they say and vice versa, but um, it, it was definitely knowing that by that point, we were all on the same page. Cause obviously up, leading up to the intervention or leading up to my, to, to my daughter's wedding, um, we, we were kind of, we were, we knew there was an issue, but I guess we were all kind of trying to manage it the best way we could with the tools in our toolbox. And after my daughter's wedding, it was more of a, no, this is something's got to change. Um, they are very, very, so she's not his biological daughter, but if you met them, you would swear that she was, and they are, they've been close since the day he came into her life and for her to draw that line the day of her wedding that night to say, no, dad, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dancing with you because you're drunk. Um, you know, to this day, he says that was all, I think that was part of the breaking point for him, mm-hmm. but to have all of the kids involved in it and, you know, be a, a united front was, um, and even today, now it, it gives us a lot of strength. Christmas was, we thought was going to be a lot more difficult. And um, it wasn't, it was, it was, it was wonderful. Oh, that's so great to hear. Along the way, obviously you got some, some bad advice, but did you have anyone besides you and the kids figuring it out as you go along? Did you have anyone in your lives that got it? Did you have anyone, family or friend who had experienced this? Or did you try Alan on at any point along the way? 
I tried Al-Anon uh, probably in, in 2020. I tried to see what it was about and, and you know, if it would help me. Um, I didn't really have any friends that I know of. Again, this is something that you, that you typically don't necessarily talk about, right? Unless you're going through right. it or you find some or someone that, that you know is going through it. Um, so I, I don't think I really had anybody in particular. I've got a, you know, my best friend who I confided in um, who would listen and she really wouldn't give me advice. It was more of a, she just sits back and she listens and, you know, kind of lets me vent and cry and all those things. Um, so it was more of a trial and error and, you know, how, how much am I going to share with people? And um, it was, you know, it, 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 it was hard. So when I finally did open up to people and the advice I got, I don't know how many of my friends or people would say, well, just leave him then. Like if he's, you know, if he's hurting you or he's lying to you or whatever, just, you know, leave him and start again. So, you know, it, that's, that's easy advice. But like I wrote, would you, like, would you just throw away all those years and, and, you know, the vows you took? I mean, I obviously took those vows for a reason. Would I just throw them away and, and, you know, let him leave him to die? Because basically that's what was going to happen if, he continued down that path and so but as if yeah I think that's why I think I resonated with 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 this group so much when I found it because it was I felt like I could talk openly and there there was no there was no judgment and there was nobody's going to say well you should do this or you should do that or it's more of a was more of a I tried this or I tried that and it's so it's not as I don't find it as as judgmental as all my friends were well, we've just loved having you as a part of Echoes of Recovery. You not only hopefully, well, you just said you've taken away from it, but you've given as much as you've gotten. And this this writing that we're sharing here today is, is just one example of that. I think it's interesting when we go to our friends or our family for help, because they love us, they don't want to just leave us hanging. And so they, they feel, I, I think... I mean, and I know I was guilty of this for a long time until I learned how to really listen. I think we feel compelled to give advice because like I said, we, you know, if somebody's trusting us with something, we don't want to just leave them hanging. We want to give them our, our best thoughts on it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You feel like you have to help and you feel like the only way you can really help is to give advice, whether you know what this about the subject or not. That's but the key part yeah, right there. Yeah, but you're, it was very nice that you had a friend that just would sit and listen because so many people have no idea how to do that. And then yeah, you I, could. I think you're ahead. right. I think, I, think it, I think at the end of the day, you know, when you talk about advice and giving advice, it's almost, you do. And I think, I don't know about, I don't know about men, Matt, more than women, but I think from a maternal instinct, you don't like, you want to fix it. You want to make people feel happy again. You don't want to see them sad, but. I think knowing what, what I've gone through, I think the best thing now that I can offer anybody is when someone comes to me with an issue is how can I help you? What can I do to help you? Because like, listen, and then what can I do to help? Because again, until, and, and I, and I read a quote the other day um, from a book about, you know, you, you can never walk in someone's shoes. All you can do is listen well enough that, you feel like you've walked in their shoes because you can't, 
And so I think yeah. listening and and then and just being there for people at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I love that. Like, what can I do to help? Or, you know, and oftentimes people throw out that, let me know if you need anything. Well, you're not, you know, that's something that's often said, um, you know, I say after it all the death. time when I don't know what else to I say. I know, and then you feel like an idiot when you say it because you're like, so I'm asking them, someone who's in a situation that could use some help and support, and I'm asking them to reach out to me again. So um, I try to be not nosy in some of my friends' lives. Like if there's a surgery or something, I like to check in more often because this group has helped me understand that that's kind of a terrible piece of thing. Like, let me know what I can do to help, but, but yeah, call but me if you little, need me. Yeah. 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 You're asking them to reach out for a second time. There's a little twist on it the way you're saying it, Donna. And I absolutely love that. How can I be of service? Like right now in the moment, what do you need? And um, I think that just proves that we're listening and that we don't necessarily have all the answers. I heard, I was on a road trip. This is probably a year and a half ago. I can't remember the timeline. And I would love, I, I, I need to do some research and figure out where I heard this because I would love to give credit to this person. But when I'm on road trips, you know, I listen to music for a lot of it, but then, you know, eventually I'm kind of done with that. And I will listen to AM radio. I'll listen to anyone other than Sean Hannity. I listen to anyone talk about anything, Pol political views. I don't agree with, I don't care what it is. I just, I find it entertaining. And so I, I stopped on a, a radio program and, and, you know, I didn't get the background, but it was around the holidays and somebody was talking about how they were dreading going to have Thanksgiving with their family because they knew that they would be judged on the fact that they weren't married yet, or they didn't have kids yet, something like that. And the, the expert therapist person who was running the radio show talked about the fact that especially with family, family is just inherently judgy because family loves us so much. They just can't sit by and watch us be in pain or be on a path that they think that we don't want to be on. And so as family, we just can't help but to dive in with all the suggestions and advice and that as family, if we can find a way to just sit and listen, just have an empathetic ear and not offer suggestions, it will change, really change family dynamics. And I mean, how Sherry and I are big Saturday Night Live fans. I mean, how popular are um, the skits that they do around Thanksgiving and Christmas about the family sitting around the table? And then pretty soon everyone's arguing and screaming and yelling at each other. It's like we've lost the ability to just coexist with people and love on each other without poking and prodding until nobody is happy to be in that situation. But I just thought that was super powerful advice, not, not just for Thanksgiving, but for any time mm -hmm. to learn how to be a good listener. So I, also, I, you know. I, I also, I also think too, though, that, that even with family, you know, that are you really a hundred percent truthful with your family about what goes on in your life? I mean, you may, I may call my sister and say, Hey, how's it going? What's going on? How are the kids? You know, my, my parents now live, live like on, in addition on my sister's house but she lives four hours away. So with my lifestyle, I can't get down there all the time. But I, because of, you know, situations in her life and situations, I might not share everything with her. And so it's great that you can judge me, but you, again, you don't know what's going on in my life. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and sometimes as family members, you know, if you have like your sister that you're close with, or, you know, oftentimes I would turn to my mom because I felt like she had lived through, 
some of the things I was living through, her story is completely different. Um, it ended in divorce with my father, but she would see me be in pain and she didn't want to see that. But she also like, there was like no boundary because she felt like even though I was an adult, she was still my mother and she had to say something. And I would sometimes just, you know, not really hold back some of the things I was saying, but it, a lot of times it wasn't good if it had been really bad. So then I never like turned like, you know, three weeks later when Matt and I were getting along great and things were going well and he had done a lot of really good stuff. I never called her and really talked about that. I just kind of left that bomb sitting there of this is all the bad stuff and then never talked about the good stuff or the little stuff or the, you know, to kind of counteract it. So, you know, there's that what we divulge, whether it be good, bad or ugly to our families. So that's their their only um, source of information and then how to give advice off of that. Yeah. You asked a little while ago, Don, you said, you know, you know how kind of females interact, but you're not sure how guys interact. Well, I can tell you having been a guy my whole life that for the most part, we just don't talk about anything important or of substance at all. So it's easy not to give unwanted advice because, you know, unless it's uh football or politics or the weather or what our summer vacation is. Those are the only four topics that guys are allowed really to talk to each other about. And so what, what was, I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but what was really interesting was when I went through my alcoholism and recovery, when it became known, when I made it public, what I was going through, certainly my close family knew long before I, you know, kind of came out and was public about it. But you know, I, I had to deal with those feelings of being the black sheep in the family for a long time. And so it was really important to me to help to educate my family about that addiction is a disease and here's how it works. And here's how the neurotransmitters are hijacked and here's the solution. Here's the cure. It's not just a spiritual deformity. It's more than that. That was really important to me to share because I wanted them to understand what I was going through. And so now I'm, I'm, you know, out there naked, blowing in the wind, everyone knows all my stuff. And then like with my sister is a good example. I love my sister dearly, but we live 2000 miles apart and we've never been particularly close. And so I thought of this as a great opportunity to uh, improve that relationship and get close because, you know, because I'm being so honest and I just never, this is not to blame her. This is human nature. She's done nothing wrong but we were never able to break through, you know, it, it's, and, and I don't know, maybe I had caused her too much pain with my drinking for her to look at me as a trusted ally that, that it might entirely be that she might be suffering ramifications from my alcoholism as well. But, you know, I could never get her to open up to me the way I, I had opened up. And I, I think it's just part of that family dynamic. And it goes to exactly what you just talked about with your sister. You know, you just, it's hard for them to give good advice when they don't actually know everything that's going on. So totally understand I, that. I, I, I even find now, now that he's been sober for almost three months, that the advice and, and some of it hurtful in, in a lot of ways. Um, and again, I, I know that it's coming from a good place and I have to keep reminding myself of that, but it's easy for people to say, you know, one day at a time, Don, one day at a time, you know, and then as I wrote it, I didn't choose to live like that. So that's right. great. 
But when, you know, when Adam wants to sit down and have this discussion now about retirement and putting money away for retirement and, you know, when are we going to retire in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, we're living one day at a time. So how am I supposed to look forward? And then when I have this discussion with, you know, a friend or, or you know, my sister, and she's like, well, you got to just, you got to choose, Don. You, you have to choose between, are you going to stay or are you going to go? Well, again, it's not that, it's not that easy. You know, I, it, it's, it's hard to live one day at a time while planning for your future. Yeah, the def- defense mechanisms that are still, you know, at the tip of your tongue that are still right there on the surface for you were there for a, for a very healthy reason. They were there to protect you and to protect your family. And just letting go of that because your husband has a few months of sobriety doesn't make sense. That's what I wanted Sherry to do too. I didn't understand. But that you know, there's a natural process to recovery for the loved one, just like there's a, a process to recovery for the alcoholic. And I think you're doing great. And being undecided is a very, really, it's a healthy place to live rather than forced decisions. So maybe the retirement, you know, plans can hold off a little while longer and just kind of see where things go. I think, I think that's the way it's got to be for you. Mm -hmm. One of the things that changed for me, and I'm interested in your perspective on this, my relationship with my kids, especially my daughter, my daughter's um, in the middle of her second year in college. And right before she went to college, I had this compulsive urge to share every bit of wisdom with her that I had never found time to share to the point where I, I, I don't think there was anything more exciting for her about going off to college than being away from me. And that's Your obviously unsolicited advice unsolicited or about, about, you know, everything under the sun. And I have just recently realized there's, there's a shift that has to take place in parenting. This is probably why they always say, you know, your kids idolize you and they, they hang on your every word when they're little. And then when they're kind of late teens, they think we're the stupidest people on earth. I think it's because we're forcing this unsolicited advice down their throats. And then eventually that can even out and we can become friends again. But I think there's this transition that has to take place where we go from the advice giver and doesn't matter what you tell me, I'm going to tell you my opinion on it. We go from that to we just need to listen and hope they've got enough good sense to survive this transition period and just be good listeners. And that's, so that's what the relationship has changed with me and my daughter. I'll tell you all super honestly, I was really tired last night. I haven't been sleeping well. And I started snapping back into, you need to do this. You need to do that. And I saw her mood change. Like it was drastic right in front of me. I could see that she was shutting down on me. And I said, oh my gosh, I'm doing this again. But for the most part, I've gone into transitioned into listening mode. And I'm wondering how this experience, it sounds like you have a wonderful relationship with your five children. How has this experience changed that relationship? Do you feel like you're closer with your kids? Do you feel like you're a good listener as a result of all this? Talk about that a little bit. I think it hasn't necessarily changed my relationship um, with them. I think in, in every aspect, it's maybe a bit different with respect to his drinking with each one of them um, because obviously the kids are all older and they have their own personality and their own lives and their own, you know, things that they do on a regular basis that make them who they are. So, um, but definitely their opinions of alcohol, their opinions of, um, 
drinking, their religious beliefs, their, um, you know, their feelings of their dad, how, you know, he interact, all those things. And I, and I think it's just getting to know kind of their boundaries with, with him now, their new boundaries with him and their new boundaries, even with me as, as, you know, his spouse that, that, I mean, I think that's some of how they've, they've had to separate it is that that's not necessarily mom. Sometimes it's, it's dad's wife. And, and I, I guess that maybe sounds convoluted, but I think they have to be able to, um, you know, look at me as, as, as someone who's lived with this, with this life and, and, you know, good for mom, but, you know, she's gone through her own stuff. And to your point, mom has to recover too. And so I, I think they look at it a bit differently. It hasn't necessarily changed the relationship. It has strengthened it in a lot of ways, but again, they have their own, um, I guess their own things that they're dealing with. And, and I've actually, you know, two of them are going for, for therapy, for therapy on their own, just to deal with That's their great. own feelings of it. Um, and I've, you know, we do talk about it. If this isn't, it's not a taboo subject. We'll talk about it. We talked about it at Christmas. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just, uh, each one of them have dealt with it differently. And, and I think the best thing that I could have done is allowed them to deal with that right differently because they're, they're not all going to be, deal with it the same they're not all going to want to talk about it they're all not all going to have the same boundaries for him they're not all gonna and so I am very thankful and very lucky that that the kids are even as a blended family very very close um I'm I'm very blessed like for that for that reason that's great that's great we have just come off the holidays we meet a lot of people who say things like oh going into the holiday season they say oh I can't possibly stop quit or stop drinking during the holidays, that would be too hard. I'm going to stop in January. And I always counter with the holidays are actually the best time to stop because yes, it'll be difficult. It'll be challenging. You've got to run this gauntlet of social things that you're either going to, hopefully you're going to avoid, or you're going to white knuckle it through or what, you know, in family and many people who are drinkers have families that are heavy drinkers. So yes, it's a challenge to get through, but three months of sobriety during from, from October through uh, the end of December is, is like, that's worth a year's worth of sobriety and normal time is what I tell him. Like, if you can do it, you get a, a big head start, but it's, as we all know, it's a really traumatic period. And there's a lot of people with the best of intentions that end up with miserable holiday experiences because they aren't able to maintain sobriety and further damage is done. It's just a, I mean, it's a cluster. It's such a chaotic period, um, to, to get through in the recovery world. You said earlier that you guys, you were expecting it to be harder, but that you had a lovely Christmas. Can you talk a little bit about that? What, what were your expectations and then what made it better than you expected? I think, uh, again, to your point, I think um, alcohol, I mean, even with our kids, it, it's, it's a, you know, we, we have a pool in the backyard. It's always a, let's come over, have a beer, go for a swim, have a barbecue. It's always been part of that life. And, and Christmas morning, excuse me, Christmas morning has always been that let's get up, we'll have a, have brunch, have a champagne and orange juice. Let's go downstairs. Let's, and so I thought uh, routines, you know, it, it, for us, it, it was a routine. That's part of, that was part of the routine. And I remember saying to Adam when he was in treatment, that's part of what we have to do. We have to change up our routines. So going to the pub now on a Saturday afternoon for wings and beer is now let's go to the conservation area and go for a walk. It's, it's all very different. What we did do though is because 
you know, some of our friends, some of our friends, well, Don, how are you going to do this? Because you can't drink anymore because of Adam, or you can't have alcohol in the house anymore because of Adam. And everyone I spoke to, uh, including his therapist and Adam was, that's not real life. We're going to be at parties. We're going to go to dinners where there's going to be alcohol involved. And so Adam was very clear that he didn't want the kids not to have our family tradition, that if the kids wanted to have a champagne and orange juice on Christmas morning, he wanted them to be able to do that. So before Christmas, I was going through different recipes, um, uh, mocktail recipes and things like that on, on the internet. And I said, what do you think? And he said, no, I don't really want to do that yet. But he said, I'd like to be able to have the same type of glass that all, that every, that all you guys have. So I, got, I mixed some, I don't know, cranberry juice and some ginger ale and a little bit of orange juice and put it in a glass for him with some ice. And a couple of the kids had a, a champagne and orange juice, but it wasn't it didn't feel tense. It didn't feel like, Oh, should I be drinking around dad? Should I not be drinking around dad? Um, it was a happy time. Adam was engaged. The grandkids were there. They were running around. They were happy. Everybody just seemed more relaxed rather than father's day when he was drunk and, you know, wasn't talking to anybody because he was so wrapped up in his next drink. And, you know, he, he missed out on so many, family events and things while he was drinking, but it was just a nice, calm, relaxed day to the point where uh, family tradition, I always give the kids pajamas for Christmas day. And into this, I mean, even the, even the, the spouses now get them. So all the girls are dressed in one set of pajamas and all the boys are dressed in something else. And when they open them, nobody wanted to get dressed. We just literally stayed in our pajamas all day. I cooked dinner. We ate in the dining room. The dining room was all ready for like a full-fledged formal dinner we all sat in our pajamas it was so you know we thought it was going to be really tense but it was just the most relaxed day we could have had that's wonderful boy you you know we talk about how people who haven't experienced this don't know what it's like a wonderful example of that is when you talk about how his mood my mood when I was a drinker could just throw things off. I didn't have to be ranting and yelling and cursing and breaking dishes. I could just be somber sitting in the corner, sipping on my drink. And that's out of character enough that it just throws off the whole day for everyone. There's tension in the air. Nobody knows what to expect. They're just, and so what's supposed to be a warm and loving family gathering gets soured by that. And the, the fact that he was there and engaged and part of the PJ crew, and just hanging and having fun. That's such a wonderful report on how Christmas went. I love that you're so in tune with the idea of changing some of the habits though. Like you said, the walk in the con in the conservatory. Um, I say that right? Yeah. Yeah. Versus Instead the, versus going to the pub. And, versus going to the pub. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's just, that's brilliant. It's so important. It, it took me a while to get mm -hmm. over when I need to meet with somebody that I maybe don't know super well and the old go-to would have been, well, let's meet for a drink. It took me a while to get comfortable with this, but now I, I invite people for a walk. And I'm sure when I first started doing that, I felt like such a loser. And I'm sure still to people, when I say that, they're like, oh, okay, but it's a great way to, to interact and socialize. Yeah. Um, well, and you used to do meet for a coffee, but then when COVID hit and yeah. things like that, you were, you know, so that kind of went to COVID helped that out. That helped that out. Is outdoors. Yeah. And you also didn't want to be like made fun of that. You drank decaf coffee. <laughs> yeah. I can't even go to a coffee shop without being a, you know, pariah. Pariah. Exactly. 
Um, I'm curious, you've talked about the, the value of being a part of Echoes of Recovery, and you talked about the fact that rather than advice, you get examples. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'll tell you what I did in that same situation. And I'm wondering about your opinion on this. I feel like there's a distance, and yes, the distance is geographical, but not just uh, a, a physical distance but an emotional distance in support groups and peer support groups that prevents people from getting right in there and telling other people what to do, making such pointed advice, the kind of advice that you, you know, so eloquently rejected at the top of the podcast. Do you, is that as someone who is in our group and, and wants to help other people and listens to other situations and wants to be helpful. Do you feel that? I don't know this person well enough to tell them what to do. So I'm going to tell them what I would have done in that situation or what I did do in that situation. Do you feel like that's why that dynamic is there? I, I do. I also think that because the group is so, everyone is either in right in the thralls of, of with their alcoholic or, you know, recovering to whatever piece of that. I think that you know that whatever, you know, if I share something, well, this is what, I mean, we're not obviously all the same people. I mean, you, you even look at some of the posts on our Facebook group, some people are very religious, some people aren't, some people are. So it's more of a, this is what I did in my situation. Take, take whatever you can from that. Take, you know, bits and pieces, if that makes, if that makes you feel better, or if that works for your situation. But I also feel that when, when, members of the group put something out there, I also know that they have lived my life. They have lived this path. They have walked this path, maybe at different pieces of the recovery stage or in the thralls of it. But at the end of the day, I know that it, that they can relate to some piece of what I'm saying. It makes a ton of sense when, when you share something, when you have a common bond with your, your cohort, with your audience, it, it, it just smooths things over. I love that. Um, I do want to point people, I want to point our listeners to other situations similar to this. On episode 97 of our Intoxicated podcast, the title was Grace in the Hurricane with Sarah. Sarah is in a very painful situation where her, uh, you know, she's an, obviously she's an adult, she's married to an alcoholic and her adult siblings just don't understand why she has stayed with him. And it, just knowing Sarah the way we do, you know, the pain that she endures from being married to an alcoholic is one thing, but she's kind of going through an equal amount of pain from her, her caring and loving siblings who just want the best for, for, for her, but their advice is you've got to leave them, you've got to leave them. And they're, you know, to the point of drawing lines in the sand, if you don't leave them, our relationship is over. Um, that's so, so hard. And when you're already going through the hardest thing you, you might ever experience in your life to have your siblings with, you know, well, well-meaning loving hearts turn on you that way. Um, it's just so hard. So for our listeners, if, if you'd like to hear more on this topic, um, that's an episode that I would point you toward. We also, um, we have a, a woman who reached out to Sherry and I just recently who is talking about how her parents are so upset with the way she's been treated by her husband that they've, they've told her they just will never accept um, the husband in her life. He's obviously he's an alcoholic, but even if he gets sober, they've said, you know, there's nothing that can happen 
that will erase the amount of pain he's caused for you, daughter, and thusly the amount of pain that he's caused for us. And so they're pushing for her to divorce him, and she's not there yet. And one of the things that we've learned through working in this field is you just know when you know. And if it's not, if divorce isn't the path you want to choose, if that's not right for you yet, nobody can push you toward that or nobody should push you toward that. You, you know when you know. And, and in this particular person's case, she's not ready for that. And so it's causing a huge rift. Again, I'm sure her parents are loving people and they're doing it with you know her best interest in mind, but they don't realize the damage they're doing. And, and that's that's really sad. Has any of the advice that you received, the unsolicited or or the kind of crass advice that you received, has it caused permanent damage in any of your relationships? Is it something that you're able to work through? I think it's something that I that I that I can work through. I I I have to look at it that everyone that I that knows my tr- that knows the true story that knows all you know that I've put my truth out there for. Um, I know it's coming from a good place. It's not that they're trying to give me hurtful advice or not trying to hurt Adam. They're not trying to, you know, disrupt my, my marriage and any, or, or my family in any, by any stretch of the imagination. So I, I have to believe that it's coming from a good place. And so um, I usually, you know, if I'm in, in the middle of a conversation and somebody starts going off on a tangent that I, I don't want to go down that road or I don't want to hear about that again or whatever, I just, you know, I cut the conversation short and say, thanks, you know what, thanks for the chat or whatever. And, but you know what, I got to go or somebody's at the door or whatever. I don't want to be rude, but I also know where my boundary is with that advice now too. That's a good point knowing where your boundary is with this unsolicited and negative advice. Cause yeah, a lot of I mean, people don't know how to cut that off because they feel like they should be respectful to the other person. Listen. And then it just seeps in and it makes then you question and doubt yourself and kind of gaslight yourself thinking, am I really doing the right thing? Yeah. And I'm not trusting my instincts. Yeah. And you know what, to that point, because I don't know how many people go back to that, you know, to the, to your, the other member of the group that, I heard many times, what, you know what, that your life's too short, leave them. Your life's too short, leave them. Um, yeah. You know, you shouldn't be treated like this, leave them. And, but again, until you, until you understand that it's a disease, like would I leave him if he broke his back and he had to go to rehab because he needed therapy? Like, no, I wouldn't do that. Would I leave him if he, you know, got cancer and had to be like, I wouldn't. So it's until people realize that, you know, maybe, well, maybe when he started, it was a social thing, but it turned into a disease. And so I wouldn't leave him for that. And so it's more of a, I, I guess in, if, if every, if anything has taught me with it, with his alcoholism and, and our recoveries, his and mine is boundaries are healthy in every relationship you have period. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the, just leave him advice. That's great advice. If someone had had a crystal ball and told you what was going to happen before you got involved in the relationship, but, but there, there is that comparison to other diseases. You wouldn't leave them if he broke his back or got cancer, but there's also you're in it now. Like there's, there's so many dynamics, there's kids, there's even, you know, mundane things like the mortgage. There are things that have to be unwound when you're so tightly wound together and so that kind of flip advice of just leaving them, you deserve better. Well, maybe better is something that we can work through 
together. Maybe recovery is better. And uh, so, so yeah, just, just leave them or just don't be with them. It would be yeah. great advice in advance. If only we could look in a crystal ball and know that but when you're, when you're in the middle of it, um, it just, it sounds like people who really care about you that are trying to, trying to, you know, can't just listen without giving advice, trying to give that advice and get out of the conversation. So it's tough. funny because my, my dad, uh, my husband, so Adam and my brother, my brother-in-law, my father went golfing for, for a trip in, in August. And, uh, and, uh, looking back now, when I, when I you know, reached it, my dad and I are very, very close. And when I reached out to my dad to tell him what was going on, he, he felt guilty because he said, I should have come to you after we came back from, from our golf trip. He said, I knew, he said, I could see there was a problem. Um, he said, I should have, he felt so guilty about it. And at the end of the day, when I said to him, what I had everyone saying to me, leave him, life's too short. And I would say, you know, dad would, my dad would say, what do you want to do? What, whatever you decide, I'll stand behind you no matter what, what do you want to do? What, do, what is your gut telling you? What is your wow. heart telling you? And, and so it was probably, he was probably the one person that gave me that unconditional, I will do whatever you want me to do. I will be behind you. I will support you regardless of, of what happens. And see funny now, even while Adam was in treatment, I looked at it as if I'm here, I say, said my vows, I'm here. And like I, I've said before, I'm not a religious person, but those vows meant something to me. And now I'm looking forward to falling in love with my husband again in a different way. Mm -hmm. I have That's a lot a, to work through. Yeah. That's such a great way your father handled that, not only for you, but for him too, because now he's not on the hook for having pushed you towards something that maybe doesn't end well. And then he's got to carry that guilt. So when we experience it and we don't say anything about it, we're going to feel guilty. When we get involved and we push too hard in one direction, we're going to feel guilty. So this, this advice that we're discussing is not just for the benefit of the advice receiver. It's totally for the benefit of the advice giver. And that makes me think of another situation that Sherry and I, um, a discussion that we had with somebody just recently who's concerned about her son's drinking, her adult son's drinking, and she was asking how to approach that. And our thoughts on that are, you know, approach it with compassion and empathy, not a, you need to do this, or you're wrecking your life, you're messing everything up, you know, kind of to your point earlier, Don, how, how can I be of help to you? What, what do you need right now? I, yeah, I'm not going to ignore the elephant in the room because that so often happens. We just, we see it and we're like, holy shit. Wow. This person's uh, drinking a lot, but uh, I don't know what to say. So I'm going to say nothing rather than say nothing, say what, what I, you know, I can't ignore it. I can see it, but how can I help you? And so I think the way your father handled that is a great example of just kind of the perfect way to do it. That's a great, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. I think as, as we leave this conversation to our listeners, um, I'm going to dole out some unsolicited advice because of course that's what you should do <laughs> at a moment like this. Yeah. But no, if, if this is an episode, I know some of our episodes hit on really um, personal subjects and painful subjects. And they're the kind of thing that if you were to share some of these conversations with family and friends, um, you, you'd almost be saying, listen to what these people are talking about. This is the same thing I'm going through. And that might be too much. You know what I'm saying? But if you can share this episode with a family member or a friend, who is struggling with how to help you, how to support you, how to give you advice, 
I think that might be really helpful because I know that the people, the advice givers can benefit from changing their perspective and their outlook and what they're doling out. They can benefit from a change to that just as much as the advice receivers. So maybe this is an episode you share if you've got um, family members and friends who are struggling with how to, how to help you. Don, I can't thank you enough for being on with us. Um, your story is compelling. Your writing, like I said, as soon as we first heard it, we were like, oh, yeah, this is a podcast episode. We've got to have Don on. So thank you for agreeing to take the time and share for the benefit of others. Thank you for having me. I, uh, it was very therapeutic. Let me say that. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.